Psalms of Ascent, and today we come to Psalm chapter 129. Now, many of the psalms in the Psalter are hope-filled celebrations of the Lord's love, His protection, and provision over His people. Uh, I think we most often think of Psalm 23, right? Uh, which celebrates the truth that the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want, right? We, we say that all the time. The Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. He, lies me down, he leads me to still waters, lies me down in green pastures. However, there are some psalms that tend to throw New, Tes New Testament readers like us for a bit of a loop. Take, for example, the, the infamous imprecatory psalms, which pray for the Lord to curse his enemies. Uh, psalm 58 which falls into the imprecatory, imprecatory genre, outright prays that the Lord will break the teeth of the lion-like oppressors and cause them to vanish like a snail dissolves into its own slime. It's a great devotional reading, right? As New Testament Christians, we are sometimes confused about how to even read such psalms, let alone pray them. After all, didn't Jesus tell us to bless those who curse us? Uh, we see the same command in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Paul told us that if our enemy is hungry, we shouldn't be praying. He doesn't mention anything about imprecatory psalms. He says, feed them. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. He commands us in Romans chapter 12, verse 14, that we are to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Well, when we look at the New Testament commands, it seems to suggest that if we pray the imprecatory psalms, then we are not obeying the commands to bless and not curse. So is that true? Given these explicit commands to bless our persecutors, to pray for those who oppress us, to love our enemies, should we pray the imprecatory psalms? A lot of people struggle with this. About once a year, maybe twice a year, I get a few people ask me, what, do I, what in the world do I do with Psalm 58 or Psalm 129? And it typically corresponds. I, I go to my little drawer and I pull out and I see where they are in their reading plan. And sure enough, yep, it lines up with the annual reading plan of reading through the Bible in a year. We start off really well in Genesis. We kind of struggle through Leviticus. And then we get to the imprecatory Psalms and we're like, okay, now I'm lost. I don't know what to do. So should we pray the imprecatory Psalms? Let me just give you a few options. We have option one, which is we just conclude that the psalmist was off, her, off, off his rocker. He was a loveless, antiquated, old guy who um, just said things that are incredibly atrocious, and so we should ignore the imprecatory psalms altogether. Option two is that we recognize these psalms had their place in the Old Covenant, but they no longer apply to us as New Testament Christians, as New Covenant Christians. If we read them, it's merely to get a historical experience of what people prayed and how they responded when they were persecuted. Option three is to receive these psalms as the still living and active word of God and to do our best to see how they point us to Jesus. In this last option, we do not see these psalms as antiquated or useless in the Christian life, but as instructive for life and godliness. I'm going to suggest today, this might surprise you, that I think option three is the appropriate choice, that imprecatory psalms still have their place in the Christian life. If we're going to be consistent with what we argue, 
We believe that every word in scripture is the living and active word of God, that it's deopneustros, God breathed, right? That it's from the mouth of God. That means even Psalm 58, which talks about enemies of God losing their teeth and becoming dissolved in the slime like a snail in salt, that even that somehow points us to, it is God's word and points us to Jesus. Somehow it makes us wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may be asking, well, is there any discontinuity between that time and this time at all? And the answer is yes. There is some discontinuity. They were old covenant believers who were praying these imprecatory psalms, and we are new covenant Christians, but they still have a place in this Christian pilgrimage we call life. If anything, it's our post-resurrection view of God's grace and mercy. It's our understanding of what has come in Christ through his death and resurrection that allows us to read with a textured view of the imprecatory Psalms. We could read them more fully, accept them more fully, and appreciate them even more than the original audience who prayed these Psalms in their own context. And so as we approach Psalm 129, which fits into the genre of an imprecatory psalm, this psalm is asking for God's judgment on God's enemies, point blank. So we approach this, but we approach it with the full confidence that this psalm is God's word for his people and that it points us to the gospel of Jesus, just as every other psalm in the Psalms of Ascent that we've studied. Just as everything else in Scripture points us to Christ, so also the imprecatory Psalms do as well. We're going to look at four basic truths. We're going to add on a fifth one. But four basic truths that come from studying the imprecatory Psalms. And we're going to use Psalm 129 as a basis. First, the imprecatory Psalms, the Psalms that pray for God's judgment on God's enemies, teach us how to engage in honest lament. Honest lament. In Psalm 129, the psalmist begins by saying, greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. Uh, I think you guys know from context that life in ancient Israel was not easy. Israel was a small nation. It often found itself caught in global conflicts between warring empires. Anytime the Hittites wanted to come and embarrass the Egyptians, anytime the Egyptians wanted to come chase off the Babylonians, Israel was in the middle watching these big massive armies walk right in the middle of their land to fight with each other. They were a tiny nation, often bullied, prone to invasions and dangerous enemies and raiders and all kinds of problems like that. So the fact that this, this psalm is beginning with a lament, it's put at the very, before anything else, it says, greatly have they afflicted me. This just shows just how bitterly their oppression was received, how, how painful it was to live in this kind of oppression, this kind of affliction, these kinds of problems. In verse three, the psalmist compares the oppression to plowers plowing upon Israel's back. It's a painful image, isn't it? Can you imagine, like, this is an Old Testament way of saying we feel like we've been run over. The tire tracks are still there. We feel like we've been run over. Painful description, an image of being wounded and hurt. I think Psalm 129 
teaches how to put down the facade, how to pretend like life isn't painful, how to stop pretending like life isn't painful, how to stop pretending as if we're not fearful and in danger and and struggling with the future. It tells us to put down the facade and to humbly tank our complaint to God, right? He doesn't isn't put on a mask. He doesn't say, yes, I've been oppressed, but I'm going to pretend that I've not. I'm going to make it out as if everything's okay. Uh, the, the psalmist gets rid of all the private walls here and lets the walls fall and just expresses an honest lament to God. Greatly have I been afflicted. And friends, what's the use in pretending as if we don't suffer What's the use in that? What's the use in pretending that we're not oppressed? What's the use in pretending that we're not wounded and hurt people? That we've been wounded and hurt by people? God already knows that, and everybody else around you already assumes that. I think this psalm teaches us that it is good for us to go to our good Father with our honest lament and struggles. He can take it. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? God can, God can take you dumping out about your laments, right? Most friends have a limit and they can only go so far, but God can take it to, for you to say, greatly have I been afflicted. It's not gonna change his relationship with you at all. Pour it out, pour out the lament to God, knowing that he cares. You realize that there is no room in the Christian life for stoicism. Right, you understand the philosophy of Stoicism, right? Where, where you somehow transcend any pain or happiness. You don't display any kind of emotions. You simply accept your fate. That's not basking in God's sovereignty, by the way. Someone who's accepting God's sovereignty is not a fatalist like that. Where is that? Well, this is just the fate. This is my lot. Just accept it. They don't show any emotions when they are in pain. They don't show any emotions when they're in hardship. They don't weep. They don't cry. They don't rejoice. They don't laugh. God has not called us to be stoics. God has called us to be righteous sufferers who have tears in their eyes, laments on their mouth. He has called us to feel. Do you realize that? Wooden robotic Christians are nonsense oxymoron. No, we're, we're truly human, emotions and all, brokenness in everything. To feel the fear, to feel the pain, to feel the wound, not feeling those things is not human. It's not the way that God made us. God made us with feeling and a, an emotion and the ability to feel lament and to cry. And my friends, the church has not had a reputation of being that way. We are private people where we're fine. We're okay. Imprecatory psalms don't come to God like that. They come to God crying. Just as my children come to me in tears, big brother hit me with a bat. That's the imprecatory psalms, right? Do something about this. I've been, I've been hurt. I'm not going to put on a brave face about it. I'm going to come to my tender, loving, and just father because I've been wounded. So-and-so pushed me down and I'm bleeding. I've been hurt. My friends, Stoics pretend they are not truly human. It's based in pride, as if we could transcend. As if we could some come, uh, this is a Star Trek reference, and I don't even know why I know this, but we pretend that we're Vulcans, right? 
Any Star Trek fans that remember Spock? Like, just doesn't feel anything? Like, I love the new Star Trek movies because they show it's not possible to be that. To be human is to feel. I just went really nerdy and brought Star Trek to his sermon, but there you go. To be human is to feel. It's not to be stoic. Stoics tragically mischaracterize and misunderstand the nature of God. Do you understand that while God doesn't experience emotions like you do, he doesn't experience passions like you do, he still passionately loves you. There's some form in that where God's ability not to feel emotions like we do still allows him to have the highest love and emotions for his people. I don't know how that works, God's emotional life transcends mine. I don't even know if God has an emotional life. He certainly doesn't go through dips like I do, but yet somehow God can be absolutely sincere when he says, I dance over my people. I love my people. Like the prodigal father, I run to my people. That's our God. Stoics don't get to enjoy that because God is a motionless robot in the sky. But no, God, God is a God who passionately cares for us. He is Jesus at the side of Lazarus' tomb, weeping. Why? Not because Lazarus is dead. Not because Lazarus isn't about to come alive. But because people cry, and that saddens him. Why did Jesus weep? I've heard lots of answers to that. It wasn't because his friend was dead. He was about to raise him up. He knew what he was about to do. He was weeping because... His people wept. That's the kind of God that we have who cry just because we cry. Jesus weeping because his people wept. You know what that tells me? Weep. Do it. Be fine with it. Accept it. Jesus didn't rebuke them. Why are you crying? Don't you know who I am? He didn't do that. He wept because he's God in flesh who who passionately sympathizes with us. Psalm 129 teaches us the same lesson as 1 Peter 5, 7. Psalm 129 teaches us how to honestly verbalize our suffering and pain and lament to God. And then 1 Peter 5, 7 adds to it that to do so is a matter of humility and trust. Cast your cares upon God, knowing that he cares for you. And before it says that, it says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. How do you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? Cast your cares upon him, knowing that he cares for you. That means be honest. Say ouch once in a while to God. That's a prayer, you know? How many of you have ever just had a day that at the end of the day, you just want to, dear God, ow, amen. (laughs) It counts. It counts. He hears it. He responds to it. Man, some of my, my most tender moments in the home is when my kids are in just this, I, I hate to say it, this gasping kind of pain because they've been wronged, they've been hurt, they've fallen, and they can't even verbalize what happened. I'm sitting there going, what happened, what happened? And all they can do is <gasps> gasp for air, and it's just time for hugs and holding and calming and comforting. Some of those tender moments. You realize our God is a better father than any father that we had had or could ever have, and he's the God who just, as we're gasping in pain, just holds. I think the imprecatory Psalms want us to be honest that we hurt. 
Honest that people have hurt us. Honest that we've been pushed down. We've been hit with the bat. We've been scraped, we have scraped knees because somebody came to bully us, right? They want us to be honest, to come to daddy and to say, ow, just to do it. So I just wanna give you freedom as Christians. The imprecatory Psalms give you that freedom to just cry and say, ouch, to your heavenly father. To do so knowing all the while that he loves you and cares for you. So that's lesson number one. Now, in addition to teaching us how to be honest about our suffering, Psalm 129 also teaches us how to be confident that God will preserve his people, right? He will keep them. He will guard them. It's a small detail, but let's see if you catch it. He, the, the psalmist laments, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. God's people also confess that. And then they add to this, yet they have not prevailed against me. You see that little line there? Yet they have not prevailed against me. In this, the psalmist is highlighting the fact that the enemies of God and God's people have not prevailed against him or Israel. God has made promises to his people, namely that he would be their God, they would be his people, and he would walk with them, keep them, and dwell with them. That's been his promise, and he has never broken it. This means that if there's ever, an, uh, ever a reality in this life where God's people can be completely exterminated and wiped out, God is not powerful to keep his people, or he broke his promise to do so. And yet, God is powerful, and God will always keep his promise. God's people will never be destroyed. Never be destroyed. They can plow upon the back. They can leave tire tracks from head to toe, and yet we are not destroyed. They will not prevail. As God's people, we have this very same promise. Even in our afflictions, we are held firmly by our God. We will not be shaken. One of my favorite uh, time periods in history is the Reformation. I love reading a lot about it. There's a, um, there's a reformer that uh, very few people actually recognize his name, but his name's Theodore Beza, right? He was a Catholic, uh, I think kind of like this wealthy Catholic priest or, or some kind of monk or something like that. Um, he married a wife who was Protestant, and as always, whatever the wife says goes, right? Well, she convinced him that Protestantism was right, he, he began to realize that the Catholic Church at that period of time was void of the gospel. Like, they weren't talking about justification by faith. So he fled the country, became a Protestant. When he came to his new home, he told the king of Navarre, uh, who was asking him, you know, why he put his faith in this particular, uh, in this particular faith. Here's what he says. Sire, it is in truth the lot of the church of God and whose name I am speaking, to endure blows and not strike them. But also may it please to you to remember that it is an, that a mini anvil has been worn, that, this, that the church is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. Let me read it again since I butchered it. Sire, it is the truth, the lot of the church of God in whose name I am speaking must endure blows and not strike them. But also may it please you to remember that it is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. How profound is that? The church has been hit. We've taken hit after hit after hit after hit after hit. 
And yet the anvil still stands, and there's many a broken hammers on the ground. Caesar hit, shattered him. King Herod hit, shattered him. King of Egypt hit, shattered him. Satan himself will hit, and it will shatter him. We are an anvil that has been hit many a times and have broken many hammers. It's just our lot to suffer, but it's also our lot to outlast our persecutors and our oppressors. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. How awesome is that? Hit away, hammer away. It'll be your arm that falls off and your hammer that shatters, but the anvil's here to stay. He's made us unshakable. Why? Not because of us. We're ultimately fragile in ourselves, but you hit against God's people. You hit against the anvil of God. You hit against God himself, and you will see the power of God. Strike us. We won't be struck down. Persecute us. We won't be destroyed. We persist throughout all the ages. We're like cockroaches in a nuclear blast. It just doesn't work. God's people stand because God is faithful. And so the New Testament and these imprecatory Psalms of Psalm 129 would help you to realize that we are God's people who cannot be broken. Yes, we suffer, and we should be honest about our pain in that. We should be honest about our lament when we suffer and are oppressed. But we should also have the faith to know that God will preserve his people. He will keep them. He will not let them be broken. Truth number two These imprecatory psalms teach us to look to the Lord for justice, to look to the Lord for justice. There's only one being in all the universe who can give us justice, and that's God. Look at verse 5. The Lord is righteous. Now, in in Hebrew, the word for righteous and justice can often have the same connotation here. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Now, you should have heard that phrase before, but in Psalm 2, the wicked rulers of the earth seek to throw off the cords of God. They want to throw off their, the authority of God and his anointed one. But in Psalm 129, it's their cords, the cords of the wicked that get cut. Their authority comes to an end. It reminds us of Psalm 125 when the psalmist said that the scepter of the wicked shall not rest in the land allotted to the righteous. Like, justice is coming. The wicked oppression is going to come to an end. Now, I think it teaches us that our hope always rests on God for deliverance and not on God's people working out their own salvation. Um, We're in unique times, very unique times. I don't think they're all that unique in the grand... They're unique to us. Let's just say that. They're not unique to everything else that's going on in the world. There's been nations that have uh, crumbled and nations that have fought and nations that have been in political turmoil. That, that, that's not new. So that's not unique about us. What's unique is in our limited history, we've never experienced times like this before. And a lot of people have asked me, well, what should we do? What should we do? I've even had people ask me, what about revolution? When should civil war start? Or when should this? Or when should that happen? My friends, civil war is a political conversation. Revolutions are political conversation. But the spiritual reality is that God's people must accept that we do not work out salvation by our own hands. We just don't save ourselves, right? We don't seek to save ourselves. If you want an example of this, you can go to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 
Saul hears, if you know the story, Saul hears that David is hiding in the wilderness of En Gedi. We've actually gotten to be there. It's pretty amazing. It's this little bitty cave up there. Saul comes to En Gedi and is there to try to kill David. Now, just so you know, Saul's in the wrong. He's absolutely unjust. He's a wicked king. He's jealous. He's tyrannical. He murdered a whole city of priests and their families, just annihilated them because they happened to help out David. So he's there to kill David. He happens to come into the cave where David is, um, where David's hiding. He doesn't know that David's there. He comes there actually to use the bathroom. And so David's sitting there, and Saul walks in to use the bathroom in his cave all by himself. Okay. Wow. David's men says, this is it, David. God has given him over to your, your hands. They do everything possible to convince him to knife Saul in the back. Just kill him. He's wronged you. This is, you're in the right. Now, how many of you would agree that David is in the right to kill Saul? How many would say yes to that? Does David have a right to kill Saul? David disagrees with you. He doesn't think he does. In fact, he's convicted just over cutting the corner of Saul's robe and says that he shouldn't have even lifted his hand against the anointed one, against the king. Here's what he tells, he goes out, he has the corner of Saul's robe, right? He's had every opportunity just to knife this dude in the back and to be, all of his troubles be over. And I think David would have been king, just like that. Quick and the easy route to the throne. David comes out and he's holding up this corner of Saul's robe. Here's what he says. Out of the wicked come wickedness. Out of murderers come murderers, right? Out of thieves come theft. So out of wickedness comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. Here's why. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. In other words, David's standing there before his enemy Saul who's tried to kill him. That, from our perspective, he has every right to kill. And David looks at him and says, let the Lord judge between us. I know I'm innocent and righteous, and God will see to it. He says that much. And, and see to it, and plead my cause and deliver me from your hands, right? Political discussions are political discussions, but when it comes to God's people and suffering and persecution, we do not declare war on our persecutors. We just don't. We accept that it's our lot to suffer, and we trust God to see to it and plead the cause of his righteous people and answer it. That may seem like passivity to you, but that has been the pattern of God's church throughout the ages. It is better for us to suffer and die for the name of Christ than for us to kill those who aren't ready to meet him. It's simply our lot as God's people to be struck and hit, and yet we trust. It's not passive, it's active. We trust that our God has made us an anvil that will break whatever sledgehammer they bring. Bring it. You're not going to prevail. And even worse, the Lord will see every strike that you hit, and there will be vengeance. Not from me, but from my Father. You hit God's child, God's child won't hit back. But the Father says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, declares the Lord. You walk up and smack one of my children, and you see what you get from me. 
The same is true for God's people. God is passionate about his children, and he is gonna be just. He will not let his people endure injustice forever. He will save, he will avenge, he will vindicate. And just think about Jesus. If we we want a picture of who modeled this perfectly, Jesus could have declared, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a speech going around that's been real viral where you know, people are you know, defending gun laws and whatever, and the politician says something about, well, Jesus didn't have a gun and his nation killed him, didn't they? That's such a stupid argument. Like, wish he would have never said anything like that. Let me tell you, Jesus didn't need a gun. He had legions of angels, right? He said that. Peter, don't you know, put the sword away. If I wanted, I'd declare a, wor- a word and legions of angels would come. When the Romans first come to the garden to capture him, they, he says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. Boom, they fall on their backs. Jesus didn't need guns. He could plow right over them. But he doesn't. Why? Because it's not for him to work vindication and salvation for himself. He willingly accepts death on the cross knowing that his father will vindicate him. That's what Romans 1 calls the resurrection. It's vindication. Let's just say our whole life goes to hell in a handbasket and suddenly the entire resources of the American government were to declare all of us enemies of the state for our faith. Let them kill us and we will still be vindicated when we pop right back up out of the ground. They will not win in the end. It takes incredibly mature faith to trust that. So when you're praying in precatory psalms, these are not the psalms that you put on big poster boards as you march down to your political enemy or your national enemy or into war. These are psalms that you pray in the privacy of your prayer corner trusting that it will be the Lord who will be active in justice, so you don't have to be, okay? Finally, the imprecatory Psalms, like Psalm 129. Oh, by the way, let me just go back and say, I mentioned the, I actually had that question about civil war and revolution. We're gonna come back to that in Romans 13 in the fall. So if you wanna know more about what I think scripture says about things like that, come back in the fall, and you can hear in Romans 13 what I think scripture actually says about it. But for now, we're going to move on. Um, send all emails to Brandon Kill, Adam Brown, Moises Pena. Uh, yeah. So, imprecatory psalms like Psalm 129 call us to remember that judgment is coming to those who oppose God. Amen? Judgment's coming to those who oppose God. Therefore, you should be warned not to oppose God. Right? That, that, that warning goes both ways. Judgment is coming on those who oppose God, which warns you, do not oppose God. Do not stand in God's way. Do not bask in sin. Do not oppose God's people. We're going to get real tight and close here and, and get real close to home here. Almost everyone thinks they're on the right side of history and that their individual cause is righteous and just. Anyone can dupe themselves into believing that God is on their side. And such an assumption is dangerous. The man who thinks God agrees with him for whatever reason may be the very man who is internally opposed to God and his people. There are people who think they're absolutely right and righteous when they say, I love God, but I hate his people. 
they don't stand on the right side of history. God's justice, according to Psalm 129, is coming to all who hate Zion. Zion is symbolic. It's the city of God, which represents God himself, and it's the city in which God's people live. It's Zion. It's God and God's people. So whoever hates Zion hates God's people, and he hates God himself. And anyone who has set themselves up against Zion, God's people, have declared war on the Almighty and therefore stand in a direct collision course with his justice. Think about what this means practically. God is going to bring down the porn industry. He's gonna bring it down. It's gonna topple. Along with all the people who illicitly tricked and violated underage women while videoing them in bed. He's gonna bring it down. And hard is gonna be the fall. But he's gonna judge all of us who also benefited from their product if we don't repent. You see, he doesn't just judge the porn makers and the sex traffickers, he also judges the porn watchers who eat from the fruit. That's why repentance is so necessary because it's, it's, it's against Zion. It's against God and his ways and his people He's gonna judge the oppressors, the tyrants who have sent refugees running for their lives. So Chavez in Venezuela, right? Is it Chavez right now? Chavez in Venezuela, um, the Afghani Taliban government, all of them, they, they've got a comeuppance coming, right? Like, like there's, there's something coming that's gonna answer their wickedness. The ones who sent refugees running are gonna face the same judgment of the ones that refuse to receive them and help them. Can we just be honest about that? I mean, there's two commands there, right? Don't be a tyrant, and don't be an unloving person who doesn't receive the stranger into your homeland. I mean, that's simple Deuteronomy and Leviticus. If we want to read it, love thy neighbor, love the foreigner, love the stranger. I mean, simple black and white things. I mean, I, we can over-politically think it if we, all we want, but at the end of the day, God does say to love those who are outsiders, Right? He's gonna judge the refugee makers and he's gonna judge those who refuse to receive the refugee into their home in kindness. You pay me to tell the truth, there it is. God's gonna topple the abortion industry. He's gonna judge the people who convinced the young girl to get an abortion, but he's also gonna judge Miss Grundy who called the young woman a hussy and refused to help her from the back of the church. He's getting the same thing. I think it goes both ways here because we tend to assume that God's judgment's coming on other people while we ignore the ways that we ourselves may be hating Zion and opposed to Zion. To be Christians means that we're open. Like, peel back the layers, look into the heart, and see if, you know, I might be talking a good talk and I might be be here, I might be attending, I might be a faithful church member, but all the same time, my heart might be utterly opposed to God and his ways and his people. That's the danger here. According to the psalmist, those who hate Zion will be put to shame and turned backwards. Doesn't matter what a political affiliation they have, what ethnicity they have, no matter how rich they are, or how poor they are, if they hate Zion, they're gonna be turned aside. Psalm 1 describes the person who fears the Lord and delights in his law as a fruitful tree planted by streams of living water. However, according to Psalm 129, those who hate Zion are the exact opposite. 
It calls them grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up. The image is meant to describe like utter famine. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is drought, right? These people aren't flourishing. They won't flourish. Those who love God and his people will flourish. Trees planted by streams of living water. While those who oppose his people will be famished. Our attitude towards God's people and other brothers and sisters in this room is reflective of our attitude towards God, right? Whether we love and accept and encourage and strengthen and do the one another's for each other is reflective of our view of God. And so there's, there's many of people who've been to church every day of their life who voted on the right side of the ballot every single time. There are people who've paid their taxes and yet they sit in church like grass on the rooftops, on the housetops, withering, not flourishing. Why? Because they don't love God and his people. They internally hate Zion. It's the Miss Grundy who's always calling people hussies and always going around judging people and being overly critical and legalistic but not basking in the gospel. Those people are grass on the housetops. Be warned. Be warned. This may seem painful to hear, but First Peter says the judgment of God begins in the household of God. Where does judgment fall first? The household of God, not to kill us, but to refine us so that we'll be burnt. So if you feel a little singed, I feel singed. The imprecatory Psalms remind me that I should look to God for justice, that I should want justice to roll down on sinners. Wait a second. I'm a sinner. I should probably repent. God, let justice roll down, but not yet. Let me repent of my lust. Let me repent of my anger. Like, that's, that's the attitude that Christians should have is that we recognize that the justice we want to roll down from heaven rightly falls on us if we're in sin. There's an urgency to repent from sin. I think sometimes we pull out our believer card and we say, I'm good. Yes, you're good if you have faith in Jesus Christ. But the proof that you do have faith in Jesus Christ, the proof that you've been made a new creature is that you are a new creature who obeys God, loves people, serves him, and stands on his word. That's the proof. And if not, you will not be one to whom people say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. You realize that that is a fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis chapter 12, verse three to Abraham, where he told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse my friends, if you hate God's people, you are dishonoring God's family. If you hate those around you, if you're not loving them, then you are not loving the family of Abraham and you're in serious danger. And so you should repent. So we've talked about those four things. Number one, you, you pour out your honest lament to God. Number two, you trust that God will preserve his people. Number three, you look to God for justice and no one else. And number four, you recognize that there is justice coming and so you're warned to not sin because justice is coming against sin, right? Now let's add a fifth one because the psalm by itself teaches us some things, but the psalm put against the backdrop of the whole redemptive storyline teaches us something else. The fifth step when we're reading imprecatory psalms is to keep the gospel in mind. 
to keep the gospel in mind. This psalm, if it is a part of scripture, which we know it is, then it is there to make us wise for salvation and faith in Christ Jesus, right? Wise and salvation for faith in Christ Jesus. God's grace can turn even our worst enemies into brothers and sisters. The people that we would naturally feel compelled to pray the imprecatory psalms to might actually uh, be people that are one day saved. It's surprising grace as it is. It might not need to be said, but it seems worth reminding us ourselves that the imprecatory psalms are not meant to be prayed over just anyone that irritates you. Somebody cuts you off on I-35, don't start citing Psalm 58, Lord, gnash their teeth to the ground, make their car dissolve like a snail in its own slime. Like, that's not the time to do that. This, the imprecatory Psalms are not written for those who cut you off in traffic. They're not for your fantasy football rival. They're not for the neighbor who poisoned your cat. They're not even for your political rival. Do you hear that? Don't open your GOP meetings praying Psalm 129 over the Dems or vice versa, whatever your affiliation. They're not for them. They're for explicitly those who are against the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual sin problem. There are some really good Republicans who have set themselves up against Zion. Really good Democrats that have set themselves up against Zion. Really wealthy people, philanthropy people even, who still have set themselves up against Zion. It's not for just anyone we don't like. <laughs> I, I, trust me, I wish it was because I have lost my fantasy football tournament three years in a row. And my brothers have not been anywhere near sensitive enough about my losses. But it's not just for anyone that we like. They're explicitly for those who are against the kingdom of God. I think, let me, let me just ask a question that needs to be asked. Does our overzealousness to pray these psalms, at whatever occasion we deem fit, does it reveal maybe a gospel void in our heart? Does the fact that we're tempted to pray these psalms every time we lose an election... Or the fact that we attempt to pray these psalms every time we are passed over the promotion. Or the fact that we want to pray these psalms every time that we are cut off on I-35. Might that reveal more about your gospel-less heart than anything else? We should pray these psalms. I've already made that argument. But I think our overzeal to pray them at whatever occasion we just feel fit to pray might reveal a problem in us might reveal a lack of understanding of the gospel. You know, when reading the imprecatory Psalms like 129, you need to remember that you yourself were once the grass on the housetop, weren't you? Aren't you the one? Where, I mean, let, what does scripture describe us as? Romans 1.30 says that we were haters of God. It says that we were insolent and proud. It, the New Testament outright declares sinners as enemies of God. For a while you were still enemies, God sent his son. Didn't it say that? So who are the people that deserve the imprecatory psalms? Me. Don't I, I mean, if we're thinking about it in the context of the gospel, don't I 
deserve just by rights of what I have done and how I have sinned against God, how I've hated his people at times? Don't I deserve to wither like grass on the housetop? I mean, anybody that says no to that doesn't fully understand the gospel here. We were the enemies of God. So how do we go from being those who deserve to receive this psalm and receive the curses of this psalm to being those who are blessed by God? And the answer is, just by mercy, just by grace. Christ died to make you stop being grass on the housetops to being fruit trees by streams of living water. He died to make you hater, to, to transform you from haters of Zion to being in Zion and a part of Zion. You went from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the sun. How? By grace alone. That's it. Nothing else that you have done. Sheer mercy. So when we, when we pray the imprecatory psalms, we need to keep in mind that we were once the ones who were recipients of those curses. And it was only by the grace of the gospel that we receive anything else. Just think of Saul of Tarsus. In the days when he's just slaughtering the church, I mean, he's he killing people here, carting them off. How many of us would not have been willing to pray an imprecatory song? In fact, I'm fairly confident that if the Christians that were being persecuted against were good Jews, they were probably praying psalms against Saul of Tarsus. Lord, gnash his teeth. God, let him become like a withering grass on the rooftop. That was just culture back then for them, to enemies of God's people. Just, you prayed that over them, and look what God did. He answered their prayer, but better than they ever thought he would. God will answer imprecatory psalms in one of two ways. He will either judge them or save them. And we should be happy about both. And we should leave room for both. We should leave room for both, shouldn't we? Fully praying the imprecatory psalms, fully engaging in the fact about we're honest about how we're hurt and wounded, fully engaging in the, in the fact that God's gonna preserve his people, fully looking to God for justice and knowing that justice is gonna come against sin, even if that means coming against us if we don't repent. But then we leave room for Jesus to make our enemies brothers and sisters. It's that's powerful, isn't it? It's that's powerful. He can make... The, your worst enemies in life and in this world into the family of God. So crazy to think about that. So when I read Psalms like Psalm 129 as a pilgrim, I read them sincerely. I have brothers and sisters in China at this moment or last night while we were sleeping that are singing in muffled voices because... There's police that could knock on the door and beat a few of them up with a baton on the way out the door. I have a pastor friend right now that's serving there that could very well end up in a coal mine tomorrow if he's ever caught. I don't have anything like that going on in my life. You know, I have a few church members that might want to shoot me sometimes, but other than that, I don't have that kind of widespread persecution like that. These people do, and I, I pray the imprecatory psalms in, in hopes that one day that God will make their oppressors like grass on the rooftops. 
All the while knowing that there's dozens of PSB officers and communists coming to Jesus at this moment. All the while knowing it. Our God is an incredibly gracious and just God. And whether he pours out justice on the enemies of his people or grace, all of us one day will fall on our knees and praise God, who is God above all gods, king above all kings. None of us will ever try to correct him. Saul, uh, you should have saved Saul. <laughs> you should have judged him. God. No, none of us will. Who are we to counsel the Lord? If the Lord saves Nancy Pelosi, there's none of us that say, whoa. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is that God works. If he saves Donald Trump, saves Nancy Pelosi, saves your arrogant neighbor who poisoned your cat, saves the guy that ran you off the road on I-35, God is good. That's the message. And if he were to judge them, God is good. That's the message. Pours out judgment on Sodom. God is good. That's the confession that we have because he is just. And then we see our enemies standing in heaven with us in the family of God and we say, God is good because he saves. So pilgrims, pray the imprecatory Psalms. Be honest. Look to God for justice. Know that God will preserve you. Know that justice is coming against sin, even your sin, if you don't repent. And then keep the gospel in mind that God is not a political God. God is not an ethnic God. God is not a national God. God is God of the cosmos. And he has made the line between darkness and light porous so that those who are in the dark may actually come into the kingdom of his son. And praise God that he did because you're here. If he didn't do that, you would still be dead in your trespasses and sins, enslaved in the domain of darkness, left to your own devices, and left to hell. Praise God. He doesn't always answer the imprecatory psalms, but sometimes answers them with grace and salvation. Father God, we thank you for your love. God, we thank you that we have to go through these awkward texts, Father, that singe and hurt and burn. But God, at the same time, I pray that you will help us to apply them and live them and to see Jesus in them. So God, as we worship today, we sing about Christ, our hope in life and death. We look to him. He is the one who hears our honest laments. He is the one who will keep his people. He is the one who is just and who will pour out justice. When he returns, he will be the king riding on a white horse ready to slay the oppressors and to destroy the dragon and to save his people. And yet, Father, while we're thinking about all that, we thank you that he's not coming to slay us. We thank you that he's not coming to crush us or to cast us into hell because he has died and rose again so that he could make his enemies sons and daughters of the high king. We thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.